You're out the door, Andy. I'm after spending about five grand on a thousand Paddy and Andy football pod t-shirts. So, oh, Jesus Christ. It's like yeah. Garth Brooks all over again. The football pod is available every Tuesday exclusively on the OTB Sports app. We're back fresh from one of the most memorable NFL weekends of all time, really. And to that end, I'm delighted to be joined by Keen Faye to recap it all. Keen, how are things? Ronan, it's been a while. I suppose we needed time off after that long regular season, but I don't think people were expecting it to be out that long. Yeah, and to be fair, the first the first playoff round was a little bit underwhelming, so we, we stayed pat until we had something to get our teeth into. And safe to say, last weekend was fairly frenetic, so much so that we've drafted in an extra pair of hands. Another off-the-ball contributor, Matt Carlin, is on the line. Matt, how are things? Good, guys. Looking forward to it. The divisional round is a couple of days ago, and it had so much momentum like coming off the back of it, and it was going to take something special, Keen, to take the headlines away. And Sean Payton, much like that time in the Super Bowl when he did the onside kick, has caught everyone unawares here and, and grabbed the attention for the time being at least. What's your big picture takeaway from uh, his departure in New Orleans? Um, you can go in a lot of different directions. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me, though, is Sean Payton is relatively young when it comes to coaches. I think he's 58. And not only that, he's already had a year out in his career after the... Um, uh, what, was, what did they call it again? I can't remember what gate it was, but it was when Greg Williams was trying to take someone's head off and he was found to be guilty and involved in it. But he's Bounty. already had a year out. So Bounty gate? There you go. Bounty yeah. gate. So you're not going to get... Um, it's not like he's he's worn out or he's he's he needs a, an actual rest. I think he's kind of looked at the Saints, looked at the direction they're going in and thought, I need a way out here because he's tied them to Taysom Hill. He's put the offenses in a bit of a mess. They don't have cap space as far as I know. And defensively, they're pretty good, but... Maybe he's just looking at the situation thinking, I need to reset, I need to go again uh, another time. But in terms of longevity as well, nobody does what he's, he's done recently. It's basically him and Bill Belichick. Even Andy Reid got kicked out quicker in Philadelphia than he did in New Orleans. So maybe it's the right time for him to leave. Uh, the, the greatest memories from it, obviously, are that first season after Katrina and just the football team gave people something to look forward to and games to actually distract them from all the horrible things that were going on in their lives at that time. And then the, the most obvious thing is that uh, onside kick in the Super Bowl that nobody saw coming. Like There are lots of times you can predict an onside kick or you can say this is a great time to do an onside kick. Coming out at a halftime of the, of the Super Bowl is not one of them. So <laughs> when he did that, that was a, an amazing decision and amazing. It, it obviously paid off. Now then you have to look, kind of try and look forward a little bit from here. He'll have whatever job he wants next year. I, anyone who needs a quarterback, like the, the kind of the earmark of Peyton as a coach is that his offense does everything. He built everything around Drew Brees and he maximized what Drew Brees could do. It's not like Andy Reid where he uh, specific, specifically wants to create space and put, spread the defense out. He will run a very tight uh, running game. He will use his tight ends a lot. He'll use a lot of wide receivers. He'll use his running backs a lot. He very much uh, adapts to what he has and that's something that could be uh, really attractive to whoever leads a coach in 12 months. But we've got head coaching jobs to talk about now, so let's not talk about them in 12 months. Mm. And his stock is Teflon keen, needless to say, but where are the Saints at? Like you alluded to the salary cap issues coming down the track here. They've lost their two most important figures in back-to-back seasons, and Michael Thomas was a relative no-show. So they, are they in a bit of trouble for the foreseeable future here? Yes and no, because they, if they have a quarterback, a good quarterback, they will be immediately be a Super Bowl contender. But I guess you can say that about a bunch of different teams. The benefit for them is they kind of know what they need and they know what they need to find. They need that spark on offense. And these days, that's probably easier to find than building a defense that can actually win you games. And that defense 
has won them games in, in over recent times. Most defenses can't do that simply because of the rules. So they're, they're in a rough spot. I think they'll probably meander around seven, eight, nine, ten wins and maybe hope to jump into the playoffs over the next couple of years and then hit a big reset. But maybe they'll get lucky. Maybe they'll find a quarterback that perfectly fits what they want. Maybe they'll find a coach that perfectly fits and it hits quickly. If that happens, the defense is there. The offense just needs to be above average then. And Matt, Sean Payton to the Giants. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. Um, I suppose the thing about the coaching carousel um, this time around, Ronan, is that it doesn't feel like there's any sure thing uh, or anyone who can come in and just take the reins and get that team into Super Bowl contention straight away. There are teams that are maybe on, on the prefaces of that. I mean, Minnesota and, and Vegas are thereabouts, I suppose, and, and maybe all they need is the right head coach to get them there. Um, but there's a lot of uncertainty about the other candidates this year. So as, as a Giants fan myself, I suppose I, I'm a little bit hesitant um, about any of the hires, really. There's no name that really sticks out. So, look, if Sean Payton uh, decides to, to come back into the game a little bit sooner than we anticipated, then by all means, I'd welcome him with open arms. And sleeping Giant, that term obviously applies in very like uh, definitive terms when it comes to that team in New York, and both teams really, but it does feel like if the Giants can get their house in order, there's a lot of momentum to be had there. It's easier said than done, as we've seen in the last decade or so. But is there anyone in an ideal world, given the candidates that are being spoken about? Brian Dable's obviously there. Nathaniel Hackett's actually gone to the Broncos, I think, as of this morning. So who would you ideally like to see heading the team in the next season? Like I said, there's no sure thing. But I suppose if you look at who's in the, the final forward league now and, and maybe the trend over the course of the last five years... I suppose the, the easy names to look towards are the likes of McVeigh and Shanahan and, and LaFleur who came from that Washington system as has been shared a hundred times now in the last week uh, and they're all offensive minds I suppose all first time head coaches coming into those positions as well so by virtue of that I, I would probably lean towards a, um, an offensive coordinator not necessarily a first time one but certainly the job that Dave has done to help evolve Josh Allen into what he is now um, there's probably credence being paid to that because Sean McDermott is a defensive head so he relies on strong offensive minds in order for his quarterback to develop which he has done tenfold um, so that name is intriguing albeit I wouldn't necessarily stand over it and say that's someone who's going to get the Giants back on track but when you look at the alternative names Dan Quinn doesn't inspire me in the least um, Brian Flores is a very interesting name um, but the fact of the matter is he has fallen out with um, management before uh, and he's really struggled to get that offensive side of things correct um, and ultimately that's where the biggest issue with the Giants is right now And is there anything in terms of other teams and their needs Keen, that springs to mind I know in terms of candidates uh, not, not specifically the names being linked to these jobs but who who's in most need of a, of a big surge here with their next appointment? Well, the Dolphins are the one, or the Raiders maybe you could argue too, but the Dolphins are the one that could really make a big leap if they get the right guy. But the problem is it seems like the ownership and the GM there are just trying to force Tua onto whoever they hire. And when they hire that person, it's, gone, it's, it's just going to be the same thing because Tua is so bad, that's, that's a problem. And we just talked about the Giants. That's the same thing in, uh, with the Giants, but it's actually in a worse uh, scenario. The Giants with, uh, sorry, the Giants owner, uh, John Mara, came out and talked about how they've failed Daniel Jones over and over again. But like, Daniel Jones is a horrible quarterback. Like, that's the reason he's failed. It's not because of everyone else around him. And they're not going to be able to build around They're not going to move on from him first. And then they're not going to be able to rebuild this team quickly because of all the contracts that David Gettleman gave them. They can't just cut a bunch of guys and be in great cap space and change a team around. Because the contracts he gave to, to all those guys he signed in the draft picks, he gave them money in such a way that they couldn't uh, be cut years in and then create massive cap space. And that's normally what you can do. 
So to me, like the Dolphins are the most interesting and the Giants are probably the least interesting. And you've got like the Jaguars in the middle there where maybe Trevor Lawrence turns around and makes a big year, uh, jump from first year to second year. And that those are kind of the three. Uh, the Texans have hired their new coach already, haven't they? Yeah, I think just the Texans and the uh, the Broncos as of this morning. So, uh, like a lot of interviews are being had, and I think even Tony Dungy was saying he got two calls. So, just as uh, Matt was saying, Jeez. it would suggest there aren't a huge amount of sure thing candidates. Uh, I think we can well, rule the... we can rule John Gruden out of the equation. I think that's about it. That's the problem, though, with the NFL. They're changing nine coaches a year, seven, eight, nine coaches a year, and that's a third of the league. And when you change a head coach, you're changing your whole coaching staff more often than not. So that means the guys who are next in line, the developmental coaches who are assistants or coordinators or position coaches, they're not proving themselves over six, seven, eight, nine years. They're getting a job for a year and a half or two years, and then they're out. And if you look at Hackett, even, he had a job as an offense coordinator in Jacksonville for two years. He became the, uh, the quarterback's coach in, in uh, another spot for a year. And then he went to, I'm um, sorry, in the, the Buffalo Bills. And he was the offensive coordinator, I believe, before Dable. He might, might, might be wrong on that. Either way, he had two jobs, basically, before he became the, the Packers, or the Packers um, offensive coordinator. And that's just working with Aaron Rodgers and an offense with Aaron Rodgers. Everyone looks good when you do that. So to me, like these guys, he's 42 as well. These guys aren't developing over the long term and proving themselves over the long term anymore. And it's because these franchises are changing over so quickly and making so many mistakes as they do it. Yeah, well, I think we've given enough uh, airtime here to the non-playoff teams. We should go to the pick six here. Yeah, I think typically, given the show is recorded on a Thursday, we would segue more towards preview than review but as we said at the top last weekend was so intriguing that we really should start there and specifically Matt with the Chiefs-Bills game which has been described in many circles recency bias notwithstanding as the greatest game ever played we don't necessarily have to put it in that exact rarefied air but what was your big takeaways from that amazing game on Sunday? Yeah not, not just that game but the full weekend has been lauded as this kind of best weekend of all time which is probably uh, hyperbole to be fair um, that being said of all the games that were played that was the one that stood out and caused me the most sleep deprivation so it, it absolutely was brilliant for the best part and um, certainly when it got towards the last quarter um, and certainly in the last few minutes the defences did look shattered and, and they kind of just capitulated which allowed um, Josh Allen and Patrick Holmes to slice them up but um, look, look for anyone who lives for drama or wants to be on the edge of your seat that was just a feast for the eyes in those last few minutes and I think the narrative kind of on the back of it now was kind of shifted towards um, overtime rules rather than just the game itself which, which was brilliant. Um, and I suppose there'll be a big debate about that now for the next while and not for the first time. Certainly when you go back to the Super Bowl, I think it was in 2019, the Chiefs just missed out after Brady got the ball first in overtime in the AFC Championship. Um, so they've been there before and they've actually petitioned for an overtime rule to change, um, which obviously hasn't come to fruition. So look, it, it is harsh on, on Buffalo and certainly that's a fan base that, that's had a lot of torture to endure over a long amount of time now. But but equally, football's a team game. It's about defense it's getting stops too, not just who is the best quarterback. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And the overtime rules have encapsulated a lot of the strife. Maybe the Bills are feeling keen, but as Matt says, the game is played in three phases here and the defense is a big part of it. And notwithstanding the fact that they were tired, you know, after four electric quarters of football, but if the Bills, which is the number one defense in the league, makes a stop there, they're a field goal away from the AFC Championship game. So to say to blame this all on the overtime setup is a bit is a bit much. 
Yeah. Can I just point out, uh, the Houston Texans are trying to hire Josh McCone. I just Googled it while we were doing it. So that, <laughs> that's why they were in my mind. Josh McCone, who's an assistant high school coach and has ever coached in the NFL. Magnificent. Anyway, uh, yeah, sorry. The, the Bills and the Chiefs game. So in, I loved the first half of that game because the defenses on both sides were incredibly smart. And what they were doing, like they still gave up, I think it was 14 each at halftime. So they still gave up two touchdowns. But they were forcing the offense to really earn every yard and really make every play. And it was constantly difficult. And you saw that even on the, on the opening drive. Matt, uh, Patrick Mahomes repeatedly had to go past the actual design of the play to try and find an open receiver or to try and scramble himself. And that's normally a sign that, oh, you've figured out the Chiefs offense at least a little bit. And you've actually put them in a position where they're going to have to adjust rather than just turn up, throw the ball to Tyreek Hill, throw the ball to Byron Pringle, throw the ball to Travis Kelsey and just make plays. So... First half of the game was completely different to the final two minutes. And the final two minutes is where the Bills coaching staff completely imploded. Like, they get that touchdown uh, at just four, six seconds in. They scored that. They take the lead. They, they look like they're in a good position. And then they come back. And for some reason, on the third and ten, where they could have basically ended the game and gotten the ball back early in the final two minutes, they have two defensive tackles and a four-man rush. And both of them drop off. So you, and they don't, they're not in coverage. They're not deep. They're staying at the line, at the line of scrimmage. So they're effectively useless. You've got two edge rushers coming down, and Mahomes is just going to stand there and go, right, I've all this space in the pocket, I've all this time in the pocket, Travis Kelsey's one-on-one -on -one outside, oh, there we go, I'll throw the ball to Travis Kelsey, easy first down. And that precedes the Tyree Kill long touchdown. And the Tyree Kill long touchdown is, there's a little bit of a blame there, because the two safeties play very poorly, but for the most part, that's just a really great throw, and a receiver who's able to run past everyone once he gets an opportunity. Like, he's actually well covered on that play, the defenders can't keep up with him. And then after that, though, you go to the final drive, and... This is going to be one of those things where when Patrick Mahomes goes into the Hall of Fame, it'll be like, he'd get a game-winning drive in 13 seconds. And you'd be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And then you go back and watch it and you go, Blaine Gabbard could have done this because the defense was an absolute mess. So you have 13 seconds, they have three timeouts. The timeouts are irrelevant because they're only going to get three plays anyway. And if you stop them, so the build come out initially and they're playing deep and off. They're looking for, to stop the play going to the sideline. Don't know why. They've got timeouts anyway. So what's the point of prioritizing the sideline? And Mahomes sees this quickly, and he just tosses the ball to Hill, sprints down the field, gets those free 15 to 20 yards. Now we're in one uh, position of one play where we can get a field goal. You would think the Chiefs now, will, or the Bills would now respond and go, okay, we need to tighten up a bit and actually play this a little straighter. And they do in a sense in that they reduce their depth from 15 yards down to 10 yards. But they make the same mistake. They've got their cornerback on the wide side of the field where Travis Kelsey is very tight to the line, uh, to the offensive line from his release point, And they're prioritizing outside the numbers. I don't know why. Because it just made the seam wide open. And Kelsey ran towards the outside defender, then turned back in field, and he's wide open. Mahomes pitches it to him. Easy catch, easy throw. And it's another first down. And it's five. It's not just in field goal range. It's five yards past field goal range. So Butker can now get that kick easily. So it, the whole thing is crazy to me in the final two minutes. The overtime rules, we've talked about that over and over and over again. I actually think they, they've improved it dramatically when they made the rule change a couple of years ago. But I believe the stat is also that the team that kicks the ball away uh, is actually still one more game than the team that uh, receives it. So maybe that will come to turnover coming years. But at the moment, it seems like it's fairly even. Yeah, and as you're saying there, the Bills, as much as they're playing prevent on that final like play to see out the game and hopefully win it. They were a little bit soft, almost to a point where you thought Mahomes was, they were afraid Mahomes was going to throw a touchdown in that 13 seconds somehow. So I think yeah. they, um, I don't know. I, Matt, what do you think about the, the Bills? Like normally we wouldn't focus on the loser of these games so much, but we fe I feel like we should give them due credit in, in the sense that Gabriel Davis did something that no receiver's ever done in a, in a playoff game for touchdowns. Josh Allen was immaculate throughout the postseason, including last week. So, like no, arguably no franchise in in American sports has dealt with 
setbacks in this way at the, the top end of the sport and kept coming back. They obviously went in that ridiculous Super Bowl run in the 90s, but yeah. are they well built now, do you think? This is such a psychological knockback, but the team seems to be in good shape to, to rally for another couple of seasons, yeah? Yeah, they are. Um, they are, but I suppose <clears throat> a bit like any other team in the AFC for the last 20 years who had to contend with the fact that Brady was at the Patriots, the Bills now have to contend with the fact that Patrick Mahomes is the Chiefs, and, and more often than not, you'll probably have to go through them in order to get to the Super Bowl. So they've been dealt a bad blow in that respect. Um, and then to add to that as well, look, I, I, as Keane said there, I don't think the, the Bills coaching staff covered themselves in glory with the way that that game ended. Um, but equally, Frazier and uh, Brian Dable, who we mentioned at the top, are both in line for potential roles at other teams as well. So whatever about how that game ended and what the coaching was like in that game, over the course of the last year or two, for a myriad of different reasons, they've generally done pretty good jobs. I mean, I think the Bills' defense is ranked as the best in the league. So there's certainly good names that the team like, and they've all grown us together to become this team that they are now. And I suppose if the band does break up a little bit now, it'll be interesting to see who they get in next and how they develop. Because, like I said, if McDermott is the defensive head, they've come on leaps and bounds offensively to what they were a few years ago. It'll be really interesting to see who they get in there. And on to number two in the pick six, and amidst the hyperbole that we touched on that this was the greatest divisional round ever, the greatest playoff round ever, and I myself would fall into that bracket of losing my mind when I was watching it, but Keane, I know you took some exception to certain elements of it, and this game, the Rams and the Bucks possibly typifies what you're talking about here, because for large parts this was a very dull game, and if it was anyone else than Tom Brady, I probably would have turned off the TV when they fell so far behind. And ultimately, they did rally back, and his cult of personality was certainly central to it, but it wasn't as if he was throwing touchdowns all over the place. There were other factors at play, not least the Rams imploding to a great degree. But uh, what did you make of this game, and can the Rams actually feel good about themselves coming out of this, where it must have felt short of Matt Stafford's heroics at the end, which we'll get to, but the way they threw away that lead, that can't sit well with them going into a big game this weekend. Uh, one Jura Gilroy went to bed at halftime of this game, I believe, because it was that bad. So it's hard to call it a great game when for most of it we were all going, this is a blowout, this is over, this is three quarters of absolute mess. Um, uh, let's, I'll get the Rams out of the way quickly here. I, I think they've, they've thrown away leads in the past uh, against their a NFC Championship opponents, uh, the San Francisco 49ers, at the end of the regular season. Normally that happens because Matthew Stafford makes huge mistakes. And interestingly, he made no mistakes last week. He had probably the cleanest game of his career, including that a deep bomb to Cooper Cup at the end of the game to set up the game-winning field goal when he went against cover zero and actually stood in against the pressure and delivered the ball perfectly. So the Rams mixed emotions, I'd imagine, because you can't really expect Stafford to do that because he's never been who he is. He's the guy who throws 17 interceptions in a season. He's not the guy who's completely clean. So if they have any concerns, it's fair It's fair to have them, really. The Buccaneers' comeback and Brady's performance was interesting again. Like The Rams obviously fumbled the ball three times, I think, and those fumbles were pretty important. One was going in on the end zone, one was uh, in their own territory. And then, like, like the, the other aspect of it is, the, or sorry, what that led to was the Buccaneers had eight drives in the second half, as far as I know. You can have eight drives in, drives in a whole game. Like, they were getting, they were going nowhere on offense repeatedly. And what happened was they just got so many opportunities, so many chances, they eventually came back into the game. So there's big concerns if you're the Rams. But again, in the playoffs, you got past Brady, you got past, a Buccaneers team that was a little bit broken but still very talented, you're going to get a home uh, NFC Championship game. You can't really complain about any of that, can you? Because they're in a great position. And you, you saw the impact of like a Von Miller last, last week where he made enough plays outside of Aaron Donald to actually help them win the game. That's what they made those big trades for. And Odell, like, 
so the thing about Odell, Odell was bad in Cleveland, largely because of Baker Mayfield, but largely he looked much slower as well since his ACL tear. And it does feel like since he's got to Los Angeles, it's not just that he's with a different team and he's with a different quarterback and with a different coach. He's also at that point in his recovery from that ACL where he's gone from being fully healthy to fully the football player he was before in terms of his speed. Because Odell always had incredible speed. He wasn't Tyree Kill, but he had that five or ten yards of, space, of pace where he'd get away from any defensive back. And that had been gone since his ACL tear. And we've seen it now over the last couple of weeks where it looks like it's a little bit back. It looks like he's got that speed back and that burst back, which makes him that terrifying prospect to cover one-on-one in space, which is why he gets a lot of the time with the Rams because of the way they scheme and because Cooper Cup draws so much attention. Yeah, and the, the Cooper Cup play that you mentioned at the end of the game was extraordinary. And Bruce Arians after the game saying something along the lines of, some of our guys didn't know we were blitzing, and if you want to put that on me, you can. And I think I probably will, Bruce, because uh, I think at a, such a crucial juncture of the game, I think everybody should be on the same page, and the fact that Cup was so open to win the game was, was quite extraordinary. But, Matt, what were your main takeaways from this game? Was it Were you enraptured by the Brady comeback, or were you more, I don't know, agog at how the Rams managed to throw it away? Um, <clears throat> well, in advance of the game... Um, I think you could say the same for every game uh, last weekend. That they were all quite evenly matched. Um, but of all the games, this was the one that actually, going into it, I felt quite confident that the Rams would win. And at the time, the reason was that Buccaneers were missing players. Obviously, Godwin's out injured. We all know what happened with Antonio Brown. and um, Missing guys on their offensive line. And also, the Rams have just seemed to have clicked in terms of what they're doing from a pass rush perspective as well. So all that combined, I kind of felt like this was a game for them to win. Um, and Keane touched on it with, with Odell there too. I mean, he hasn't just got that yard of pace back as well, but he seems to have that degree of confidence back as well. He, he didn't just lose his um, pace when he was at Cleveland. He lost his confidence well that enabled him to make those one-handed catches or that incredible torque that got him away from defensive backs or, or just get his feet in bounds at the last minute. That seems to be back as well, and that's such an outlet for him now as well, I think. Um, but look, I suppose the thing about that game as well is that for any casual NFL fan that was watching, it was on 8 o'clock on a Sunday. It was Tom Brady. And so there was probably a lot of passive fans watching this and the amount of people I had texted me at the time saying, oh, I don't I don't want Brady to go out. Not like this. And hmm. they were devastated by the potential of it happening. And throughout the whole thing, all I could think was 28-3, the Falcons game. And, and like Keane alluded to as well, all I could think of was the Rams have done this already this season against San Francisco. So there was a few contributing factors there that made me think this game is far from over and certainly at halftime anyway. Um, but the manner in which they got let back into it, just with the fumbles and everything, was was egregious. And I think they have every right to be nervous going into this weekend. Yeah, and we can move on in a somewhat similar vein to number three in the pick six and what happened to the Green Bay Packers, which was in itself a capitulation. And staying with you, Matt, on the Tom Brady point and tying it in with someone who's perennially linked to him, which is Aaron Rodgers, a contemporary at that position. Um, who's, like, is there any chance... Either of these are at, their, at, this te- at the teams they're at currently next season. As in, there's a very good chance Tom Brady will retire. And if he doesn't, I can't see him being in Tampa. And it seems, by all accounts, that Rodgers is going to be out in Green Bay. Or what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, he, he's been quite vocal about it. Not, not just last offseason, but again, this time around, and saying that he needs to assess the situation. He doesn't want to be a part of a rebuild. And Green Bay are in that precarious position now, whereby they have a lot of contracts that are com- coming to the fore. So they need to make some tough decisions. And... Wouldn't shock me at all if they would have made a decision last offseason that, that allowed Rodgers to do one last season, the last dance, as he called it himself, uh, and let him go now. So 
it wouldn't shock me if it was either way, but going to my head right now, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he stayed, actually, um, just because we, we've seen him do this dance a few times before, only to remain there. Um, and the game itself, interesting one, I suppose, at the very start of it, that opening drive, Green Bay looked quite good. They were running it well. They were finding Devante Adams, and it was kind of going how you'd expect it to. And I think it was Fred Warner got that hit on, can't remember who it was, I think it was the tight end. And they got the ball back as a result of it, and that just seemed to change the momentum in the game. And remembering the wild card weekend, I think Green Bay fans would have rather faced Dallas. And I'm not saying this with 2020 hindsight, but even at the time, I think we knew that San Francisco had been on a bit of a run. They, they won in Dallas, they, they, they won in LA um, to get into the playoffs. Um, and they just had that combination of a lot of grit and an ability to run the ball unlike many other teams. So, I, I mean, on the surface, you would say Green Bay blew it and, and, and that kind of thing. But equally, you know, San Francisco are a tough team to beat. Um, and, and they've been here before and they know how to do it. What do you make of it, Keane? Like from an X's and O's point of view, I touched on it with the Bills there earlier. There's three phases of this game and the Packers are literally the worst special teams uh, unit in the whole league, 32nd of 32. And that's all well and good. They actually, you know, block field goal, block punt. Not many teams are going to come back from that against a well-oiled machine, as Matt says, like the 49ers. But equally, I don't want to let Rodgers off the hook totally here. Like they scored a touchdown early doors, as Matt said. If Mercedes Lewis doesn't drop that ball, I'd say they're in the end zone again, and it could well be curtains, but they had that setback and they never recovered. So not a great showing for Green Bay. So this is the problem. If Mercedes Lewis doesn't fumble the ball, they're in great position. Okay, but Mercedes Lewis is on the field. Mercedes Lewis is 38 years of age. He was reduced to a blocking tight end six years ago because he was washed up as a receiver. And then three years ago, he was, he was washed up as a blocking tight end. And yet, the Packers are still here giving him significant snaps. And you can say Robert Tanyan is injured. That's fine. But Robert Tanyan is one player. And you've got all these other tight ends on the field. J- uh, De- I can't remember the guy. DeGarrel, whatever. His, I can't say his name. The rookie or the third-round pick they had from a couple of years ago. Josh DeGura, I think it is. He dropped a huge pass down the middle as well. You have uh, another tight end there who they were looking for on one of their big shot plays uh, during the second quarter, I believe it was. And he just wasn't capable of outrunning the, the defensive back who was covering him. And this is the problem. They've just got too many players on the field who aren't good enough. Devontae Adams, if you can stop him from winning the game in the passing game, Rodgers has no one else to throw to. Alan Lazard is hugely inconsistent. Marcus Valdez-Scantling wasn't available. So you're throwing to guys uh, like Equanimous St. Brown who aren't actually going to get open or be effective. And when you can't do that, you have to try and run the ball. And when they try to run the ball, the 49ers are able to stop it. So that kind of shut down their offense. The problem with this game is it's hard to overly sell the 49ers because they literally won by scoring a touchdown on a blocked punt, and that was it. Like It's not like the offense there was effective in running the ball. Like Devo Samuel made a couple of big plays running the ball. He didn't have a huge game or anything like that, did he? Like It's not like he was up and putting up 150 yards that we know he's capable of doing or 200 yards he's capable of doing. He was just did enough plays for them to win over uh, in the end. So I, I kind of go into it looking at the Rams and the 49ers have played very good games against each other. But one of the things that really shocks me this moving forward this week, if I if you said to me at the start of the season, Matthew Stafford's playing in the NFC Championship game, I'd say, all right, no matter who's on the other side, I trust the other quarterback more. Hmm. But not with Jimmy Garoppolo. <laughs> like Garoppolo has been such a mess for so long. And it's going to be absolutely hilarious if they win the Super Bowl with him and then trade him away to start Lance. Because if they win the Super Bowl with him, what the hell are they going to do? Trent Dilfer must be the last quarterback who won a Super Bowl and didn't continue with the team the next season, unless a listener might be able mm. to tell me if that's untrue. But oh well, Peyton Manning obviously retired after he won the Super Bowl, but that yeah. was that's probably a slightly different dynamic. We can stick with the Packers, but on number four in the pick six, we should get to um, the other number one seed who is out, which is again quite extraordinary and different circumstances. Obviously, the Titans will feel disappointed given. 
how they rallied and configured their team given the amount of injuries they had and somehow managed to navigate their way to a number one seed, got Derrick Henry back and you know, were in prime position against a, a team that not a notorious you know, playoff outfit in the Bengals and succumbed again, Matt. Like, and they're 0-3 as number one seed in the history of the playoffs, which maybe we put too much credence to these franchise historical elements, you know, it's not going to affect the players in the field necessarily, but didn't, I never got the feeling that the Titans were in control of that game. No, that, that, that's well put actually, yeah. Um, that's it exactly, and again, to, to go back to it, if you're looking at these games in advance, it never felt like either team had a huge advantage other than the fact that Tennessee maybe had the, the week off and that they were number one seed. Um, and they had some good wins throughout the season, you know, so it, it's not like they didn't deserve a little bit of respect, but the reason they tend to not get kind of media attention in states or, or get much respect on a regular basis because this type of thing tends to happen. Um, but when you look at the actual game, I suppose, yeah, look, Derek Henry was back and I suppose that, that was maybe where the, anticipa the anticipation lied. We expected him to get a lot of carries and to kind of drive them towards that win. He got the carries. He got 20 carries, I think, a mass to around 60, 65 yards. Borderline ineffective then as, as a performance. Tannehill who I'm quite fond of, didn't really have his best game. Um, I think he had three interceptions in total, which is quite unlike him. Um, and then conversely, lo looking at the Bengals, if you have a, a threat like Jamar Chase, you kind of need to shut him down. And if you can't do that, then you're always going to be in trouble. Now, he wasn't the reason that they won the game necessarily by himself. Burrow got sacked nine times in total, I think, so he wasn't exactly on this game either. But they found a way to win. There's, there's something about the Bengals in which they, they just have a bit of grit. Again, they've won some good games since their bye week coming back as well. Um, and I suppose looking ahead now to this weekend, that they're a very young team, and I'm surprised they've gotten this far. It's been a bit of a fairy tale for them. Um, but the Chiefs might be a little bit nervous against them as well because they've already lost them this season. Matt alluded to his affection for Ryan Tannehill there, Keen. I know you were somewhat in the Ryan Tannehill fan club. Definitely were at some point. I don't know if you still are, but you would have seen a lot of the flack for this failing has fallen squarely at his door. And again, the seemingly seasonal questions around whether he'll be there next season fair or no that he's getting this criticism oh it's absolutely not fair if you go through that game so if we go through the first uh, the three interceptions the first one is god awful he completely misreads the coverage he's so slow getting the ball out i tend to think that's a byproduct of being off for two weeks and not playing at a uh, nfl pace for two weeks and so you come out and you think you're going to have a wide receiver wide open you don't realize the linebacker is already reading what you're doing and you show the ball straight to him that's an awful awful play and a terrible way to start the game but second interception is just an incredible play like you can't blame a guy for uh, getting his screen pass jumped so athletically and so uh, so well, like he anticipated that ball, Mike Hilton, and caught it away from his body and was running in the opposite direction. Like that's a, an unfortunate thing to happen. The third interception is 100% on Nikila Hine, Westbrook Hines. Uh, I can't Westbrook Nikila, that's his name. Uh, so he's the backside, the deep curl route. He's the right option. He's the right play. Tannehill puts the ball in the right spot at the right time, and Westbrook Hines is not able to get through his break the way he should. He is very slow going into his break. The ball is actually on its way already at this point because it's supposed to be thrown at that point. And when he turns around, you don't see him come back to the ball. You see him sink deeper into the defensive back, which allows the defensive back to reach around him, pop the ball up in the air, it's intercepted, and the Titans lose his game. So I don't think he deserves a huge blame there. There's great irony, though, for this Titans loss because they got through this season with all the injuries, and they, that was the story of their season, and that's what something they were proud about. And then they put Derrick Henry on the field when he should not have been on the field. He was so clearly slow. He was so clearly unable to move properly that his backup running back, who was not a particularly good running back, Dante Foreman, came in and had huge numbers. And they kept playing Henry instead. Like They even ran Henry during that final two minutes when they were in position to try and go and win the game. It, it made no sense. 
But that's kind of been what the franchise has been for a, a long time right now. Everything is about prioritizing, prioritizing Derrick Henry. And then you look at the passing game and why the passing game struggles. They've got Debo Samuel. They gave up a second-round pick for... Sorry, Debo, not Debo Samuel, AJ Brown. They gave up a second-round pick for Julio Jones, who's very clearly washed up and has been like, the final year, in his final year in Atlanta. But outside of that, it's been all running first, run first requirements. And then you look at the team this year to last year. John Smith left at tight end, and he was a hugely important part of their success, both in the running game and the passing game. And they did absolutely nothing to replace him. They're still looking at uh, like Michael Pruitt and Anthony Fersker, who are got role players. They're guys who can't be on the field too much because they're not capable of doing everything. So the Titans need a lot of work. And if they think they need to change their quarterback and that will fix their offense, I'd be very surprised because there's a lot of problems on that offense that, that aren't have anything to do with the quarterback. And what about Burrow then, Keen? if we're taking with the quarterback situation, getting a lot of praise for how he circumvented the situation he was put in there with the nine sacks and running for his life on occasion. But he's not entirely blameless on some of those sacks either. And if he brings that into this weekend, he's going to be in trouble. Look, he's a second-year quarterback with a major injury in his first year. So he's a phenomenal player and he's had phenomenal achievements to this point in his career. But we're also, we have a tendency to take these guys and put them on the level of Patrick Holmes and Aaron Rodgers before they're actually there. And Burrow really, really caused a lot of those sacks last week. I would say half of them based on just going through a tape. And I did a video for Off the Ball this week. You can find that on our social media. But he's holding the ball too long at times. He's not seeing the right receiver at times. He's moving into the wrong part of the pocket at different times. So there's a lot he can still work on and get better. But overall, you can't really complain too much about him. Like that connection to Jamar Chase for the, the set up the game-winning field goal on the, on the corner route was a perfectly thrown ball. He had a couple of outstanding plays in the game as well overall. Like he's he's uh, proven in his second year. He, didn't, he showed in his first year he was a good, solid quarterback. He's proven in his second year he has the potential to be a great quarterback. And if he can continue to, weigh the, to connect with Chase the way he has, then he'll be flying. Like Chase obviously makes everything a little bit easier than it should be. I just do think this year it's probably a year too early for them to overcome the Chiefs. I know they beat them in the regular season, but this Chiefs team tends to be a little bit different in the postseason. And on that same point, we move on to number five in the pick six and a bit of a preview of the game upcoming, Matt. Um, Chiefs against... Joe Burrow and the Bengals at large and I can put my AFC allegiance, AFC North allegiance to one side here and admit I do enjoy the Bengals style and there's some something of an irony in how good Chase has been to the detriment of them not you know drafting help for Burrow on that offensive line and you know probably would have been the smarter football decision to do that but hard to argue with the results they've gotten from Chase who was electric the other day and they've just got this great temperament about them you know, like the Evan McPherson, how clutch he's been as well. And, you know, it's true in other elements of their team. And, like, it's, it's an interesting one, and I might put this to Keane in a while, but specifically on the temperament side of things, the Bengals aren't going to be found wanting in this big pressure game, if you know what I mean. Like, these lads seem to, although quite young in their career, are able to deal with the big occasion, and that won't be an issue this weekend either. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and as Keane alluded to there, Burrow was good in his first year and he's kind of shown that he can be great in his second year and that, that's a very good point and so as tangibly you look at the yards that he's put up and his connection with Jamar Chase and, and that's obviously been probably the highlight of the season and the kind of narrative that everyone's followed but there's the intangible side of it as well with the way that Burrow was able to handle pressure at LSU in those big games and um, we've all seen the video of him after the win with, with the cigar in his mouth kind of Joe Kill as everyone calls him he, uh, that, I think that permeates through a team as well and kind of sets the tone for what they can be and um, and he's been as vocal, I suppose, in his press conferences and that kind of thing as well, or his post-match interviews. He sets the tone, and I think everyone else kind of feels that, and they feel a bit more at ease with him at quarterback. And 
Look, I, I don't know if they have enough to, to beat the Chiefs um, purely because of their age. And like I said, it's a bit of a fairy tale run. And I kind of feel like that has to come to an end at some stage. But there is a lot about them. And it might not be Burrow in the end. It might not be Chase in the end. It could be their defense. I know look, the, the Chiefs are, haven't exactly been spectacular defensively themselves either. Um, but I think the Bengals have it, have it in their locker to go after Mahomes as well. So it's an interesting game. I, if you're asking someone to take a pick, I, I don't think I could um, pick the Bengals in it. But certainly looking forward I mean we, we talked about um, the Bills and how their forecast looks for the next 10 years the Bengals won't be a million miles off that if they make the next right next few drafts right and they shore up that offensive line and get a few more weapons for Burrow as well I'm keen it's maybe absurd to ask this question given they literally beat the Chiefs a couple of weeks ago but do you see a path to victory for the Bengals is there one Oh, of course. I think these playoffs have been coin flip games the whole way through, to be honest. like uh, I know some teams have been have put up big scores, but it, it's, it wasn't just that we had three last-minute or last-score, one-score games at the weekend. Like we, said, we said a couple of weeks ago that when there was uh, at the wildcard round, even everyone there kind of looked like they could possibly win or at least beat all the other teams they were uh, going against. So I think it's very possible if Chase is a huge game, if T. Higgins is a huge game, uh, Joe Mixon can do what Joe Mixon does and break tackles constantly, then they'll have a big chance. But they will have to win this in the shootout. It's going to be one of those games that's 42-36 at the end if, if they're going to win it, I think. The benefit for the for the Bengals, regardless of this, is great experience for all those players. All those young, young guys are going to play at this level and play at this deep in the playoffs and they're going to be able to come back next year and know how good they are and how good they can be. It might hurt them in the short term because that's, sometimes that happens. They get a little far ahead of themselves. But in terms of uh, quality of team development and roster construction, it's very helpful because very, very rarely does a team become great in the regular season and then go into its first playoff run and win a Super Bowl. It's normally you go in for the first time, you lose or you get battered and then you come back and learn from it. Uh, you can go through the San Francisco 49ers, the Seattle Seahawks. You can go through uh, Kansas City Chiefs. They lost to the Patriots, wasn't it, in Mahomes' first year as a starter. So these things happen to teams, and that's kind of just the way the NFL works. It's one of the few predictable trends, I guess, that the NFL has. And Matt, do you think, like it's interesting with the Chiefs now, they look quite similar to the teams of Europe, but I would say they're configured slightly differently. There is a, there is a more of a reliance on those top echelon players, and the, they don't have the depth beneath that necessarily. So... Is a mistake-free game enough for the Chiefs this weekend, or do they really still need Mahomes, Kelsey, Hill to be playing to their max to, to get the job done? Well, <clears throat> I think those kind of key three players, Mahomes, Kelsey and, and Hill, have been playing for their max in the last few weeks. Um, now, granted that their first-round game was against the Steelers, so you take it with a grain of salt that perhaps not the, the best opponent that they'll come up against. But Mahomes looked zoned in, and he looked like 2018-2019 Mahomes, and they looked like they were always going to win that game. The Bills won, like we said, they didn't have the best defensive game of their lives, and certainly towards the end they did capitulate. But for a long time, Mahomes looked comfortable, and then they were putting points on the board, and as Keane alluded to, that first half was, was brilliant by both quarterbacks, and Kelsey and Hill contributed to that as well. Um, I don't think they need to be mistake-free as such. I do think the Bengals will make mistakes as well, and Certainly for Burrow, kind of standing upright and evading more sacks, the Chiefs' pass rush probably won't get after him as much as the Titans would have. Um, but look, I don't think it needs to be mistake-free as such. I, I just don't see them making a huge amount of mistakes because they really look zoned in in the last few weeks. So it's just not a, like... In some ways, I just think if the Chiefs don't give the Bengals this game, they'll get over the line. I don't yeah. think... In a, in a shootout necessarily, I just don't think the Bengals quite have enough in the way... Like that game a couple of weeks ago was a bit of a red herring. There was some officiating... Uh, issues in that game let's just call them and 
I think if that game was played 10 times, I think the Chiefs would win the majority of them, and that would probably be yeah. where I would fall down on it this time. And on to number six in the pick six as we wrap here. Uh, probably a more tricky game to call. Again, there's a, a frame of reference in a game that was played very recently between these two teams, but I get the impression if both teams play to their optimum level, Keen, the Rams will have enough to get it done. Would you share that view, or what way are you leaning here? Yeah, but it's weird to say that because they lost both regular season games. Like we're we're at a point where we're sticking with the Rams because we see them as more talented and a more rounded roster. But the other side of it is, I think the Fortnite is probably a better coach team. I think they're probably a team that's got a level of consistency and understanding of their own identity better than the Rams do. And that's something that happens when you bring in players in midseason when you have significant injuries. Of course, the Fortnite have had significant injuries too. But to me, this isn't a clear-cut game. I think it's very much... Co- I could see it going either way. And But regardless of it, I think the winner of the Super Bowl comes out of the AFC one way or another. I think both of these quarterbacks are harder to trust than the AFC quarterbacks. And I think there are just too many different flaws and different reasons to break down the teams and say, oh, this is a problem here. This is a part that could be attacked here. This is a part that could be, could be isolated here. Having uh, the likes of Fred Warner and uh, George Kittle on each side of the ball for the 49ers is huge because I think those are two guys who come up with big plays and big moments and could prove to be the big difference in the end. But then you point to the other side, like Aaron Donald's a constant threat and a constant problem. And with Odell and Cooper Cup there, there's a level of consistency in the, in the offense as well. So you can kind of talk yourself around in circles with this game. You can find reasons to argue from one side and reasons to argue from the other side. The hope is that Garoppolo has one of his better games because he hasn't had one of his better games for quite a while. And the hope is that Safford plays a relatively clean game because if that happens, you'll get the both sort of bet team, bet, uh, you get the best out of both teams, and then we'll really see which is the better team and which one will give us the better matchup in the Super Bowl. Matt, what do you reckon? Yeah, look, I mean, I think Keane will know the X and O's better than I will there, but I suppose just narratively speaking, the Rams haven't beaten the 49ers since 2018 in the regular season, so nearly four years ago now at this stage. Jimmy G is 6-0 and against the Sean McVay Rams team. Um, they beat them as recently as three weeks ago in LA as well. Um, add that to the fact that Shanahan and McVay know each, other, know each other so well from coming from the same coaching tree at a certain point, I just wonder, are, are the 49ers in their heads a little bit? And certainly, I, I don't know if you saw um, some of the stories coming out of, out of the West Coast there, but uh, the Rams are basically asking their fans not to sell tickets to anyone outside of the hmm. LA area, and certainly not to San Francisco fans, um, which has only backfired because San Francisco fans have relatives and friends who live in LA who are able to get them tickets. So there's a few, there's a few news outlets who are reporting that's going kind to of backfire a little bit. Um, on paper, in terms of who's a better roster, I, I think the Rams are better, but there's that thing in my head that says Shanahan's won this game before, and I think he can do it again, so if you're asking for a pick, I'd go with San Francisco. Oof, because uh, I've picked against the 49ers two weeks in a row and been burned both times, and I'm going to go for the third time. So I'm, go- I'm, I'm predicting a Rams-Chiefs Super Bowl. Keen, I'm going to start with you. Do you agree or disagree? I'm going with the Foreigners and the Chiefs, and I would really like to pick the Bengals just to disagree with you fully, but I can't. <laughs> and Matt? You're going 49ers and? And Chiefs as well, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll have a repeat of the Super Bowl from two years ago. Dally, I think there's a lot of narrative in that one, and I always try to put myself in the, the mind of the TV network here and who they would want, and I had thought, you know, Rams at home, you know, it's, uh, that's kind of going to play into it, and they want the LA angle, but they're not a hugely supported team as compared to the 49ers, so maybe you've got 49ers-Chiefs, the revenge match type thing, so I think that might be the one they're hoping for as well. But it's going to be interesting no matter what happens. Thanks a million, Matt, and thanks a million, Keen, And thanks to all of you for listening as ever. We'll be back next week to reflect on the championship games and to preview the Super Bowl.